0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Box Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Box Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at Vox.com slash EarthMonth.
2: Welcome to Future Perfect. I'm your host this week, Dylan Matthews. I remember being seven years old and hearing on the news that world leaders were in Kyoto and had worked out a deal that would put a stop to global warming. Now I'm 31, and I regret to inform you it was not taken care of. World temperatures have just kept rising. And while some countries have taken actions to reduce emissions, it hasn't been anywhere near enough to halt the damage of climate change. This month, to celebrate Earth Day, Future Perfect is taking a look at some unorthodox approaches that might mitigate the climate crisis. That's where today's guest, Kelly Wanser, comes in. Wanser is the executive director of Silver Lining, an organization that promotes research into a policy known as geoengineering, or as Kelly calls it, Solar Climate Intervention. So what is solar climate intervention and how can it help cool the Earth? Kelly, welcome to the show why don't we start with the very, very basics? What is solar geoengineering and how would it work if we tried it?
1: Solar geoengineering, or what uh, what we and many in U.S. government circles call uh, solar climate intervention, is really about trying to solve the problem of, you know, how could we influence the climate system more quickly if we needed to? It's really the idea of dispersing particles in different layers of the atmosphere in the in the outermost layer, the stratosphere, to reflect sunlight directly, or in the lower cloud layer, to brighten clouds to reflect sunlight. And so so that's what they mean by that, which is dispersing particles to slightly increase the reflection of sunlight from the atmosphere. And these ideas are based on phenomena that have already been observed. So it, it wasn't that they sort of drew them out of thin air. One observation that's been made over the years is that when very large volcanoes go off, um, if they're large enough, they'll emit material all the way into the stratosphere where it gets entrained and it will uh, stay for a year or two. And when Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991, it pushed particles out into the stratosphere and it measurably cooled the planet by over a half a degree Celsius for over a year. And the year after Penatuba went off, they also had a dramatic increase in Arctic ice. So it cooled the planet, it restored Arctic ice, and that's something they had seen in the historical record before. And so one of the ideas of dispersing particles into the stratosphere is, is based on something that they have a pretty high degree of confidence would work. The question is, you know, what are the side effects of doing that and what are the effects of doing that over a longer period of time? Today, in our emissions, uh, we emit greenhouse gases, but we also emit particles that are mostly what we know as pollution. And those pollution particles, they mix with clouds in the lower atmosphere today in a way that brightens the clouds and it is projected or thought to be cooling the planet. And so our dirty emissions today are thought by scientists to be causing a cooling effect of somewhere between... 0.5 degrees and 1.1 degrees Celsius. And so what that means is we're actually doing a form of this already today by accident. And so these things are in a way they're new and in a way they're not new. We know some things about them, but we know not enough about them to know whether or not yet this is a good idea.
2: Tell me a bit more about those industrial emissions that that seem to be cooling the planet now. Obviously, we we think of emissions from like coal plants as as warming the planet. What's different about, about these particle emissions that that have the opposite effect?
1: Well, when, one of the challenges of the situation is they're mixed together. So when you see that plume coming out of a coal plant, it has a bunch of different things in it. And so it has the greenhouse gases in it, and it has these um, more particulate type substances that mix with clouds. And this is true of coal plants. It's true of ships that traverse across the ocean. It's true of cars, most of the things that we know as pollutants. And then as we transition to a a sort of a low emissions or zero carbon um, society, we'll lose that cooling effect of those particulates. One of the challenges that we have right now in terms of this of difficult situation that we're in is we don't know how big that cooling effect is and so we don't know how much we'll lose. There was a big experiment um, that we're hoping to help get more resources to study in 2020. There were actually two. One is with COVID and all of the shutdowns, there were big reductions in these emissions, as as you guys probably know. So scientists are hoping to study whether that can tell them more about the cooling effects of those emissions um, and what happened when they were dramatically reduced. There was also the implementation of emissions restrictions on cargo ships and ships that travel across the ocean. If you look at the earth from space closely enough, you can see bright streaks across the ocean where the emissions from ships are brightening clouds. And uh, scientists call them ship tracks, and they're a big topic of study. And it has a particularly strong effect because the ocean is dark. So you're creating brightness over a dark surface, which reflects more sunlight away than otherwise would be. So that effect too in 2020 was dramatically reduced. And so we should be able to learn a bit more about how this works. But if you read the scientific reports, like the UN's IPCC report, this effect, which they call the cloud aerosol effect, is the biggest uncertainty in predicting climate in the short term. So at least one of these proposed climate intervention or geoengineering ideas is highly uncertain because we don't know what it's doing right now. And that's one thing that scientists would really like to study.
2: So climate change is is very much about the shift in global temperatures, of course. There are other aspects of it as well. And my, my understanding is that, Solar climate intervention might not have as profound an effect on on things like ocean acidification. What are what are the limits of of what this can affect? Are are there things that are part of the the overall climate change picture um, that we would need other tools for, even even if we figured out a way to do solar climate intervention in a in a safe and responsible way?
1: The responses to climate have different characteristics, and so. Solar climate intervention is not proposed by the people in the field as a replacement to solving the underlying problem, which is that, you know, putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is effectively a sort of a toxic dump activity. It's adding a variety of unhealthy dynamics into the Earth system. And you have to stop doing that and you have to stop doing it as quickly as you can. You're trying to get to a place where you have a sustainable, healthy system for humans and and for the environment. So some of these proposed responses, we sort of call them responses rather than solutions, are about addressing parts of the problem at points in time to help you get to that outcome. And in that way, it's a bit like medicine. Where you have certain treatments that help stabilize the patient, you have certain treatments that help, you know, manage parts of the system, and your end goal is to get the patient to a holistic, healthy place. And so in this case, the primary thing and one of the, you know, really only benefits of solar climate intervention is that it pushes heat energy out of the system. And right now, it's that heat energy that's putting the stress on the system that's bringing it to a really dangerous place. It doesn't take the toxic effects of too much CO2 out out of the system. Where solar climate intervention helps and where reducing heat stress helps is that we're getting to the point where human emissions are adding greenhouse gases, but as the Earth warms, the natural systems start to add greenhouse gases too. So one of the things that's starting to happen is that the parts of the planet that are permanently frozen are starting to melt. And frozen in in those parts of the planet are greenhouse gases, lots of them. So this is the permafrost that's in Siberia, in the Arctic, that's under the ocean. If we let warming continue, those systems will push greenhouse gases both directly into the ocean and into the atmosphere where it will get taken up by the ocean. So solar climate intervention does not help this problem of ocean acidification that comes from greenhouse gases that's caused by human emissions, but it would help prevent making the problem worse by having the natural system add to it.
2: Everything about permafrost is terrifying, but that's that's an angle i hadn't hadn't thought of. you've You've been really emphasizing how much we don't know and how much we still need to learn about how the kind of chemicals that would be involved in in solar climate interventions would affect global temperatures. Why don't we know more? What would we need to do to to learn what effect these emissions are currently having and what what a clean version of these emissions, as you said, would do? how How do you go about answering those kinds of questions?
1: Well, that's a great question, Um, and that was one of the core questions of this recent National Academy of Sciences study that came out last week. You know, their question was more, what is the research that we need to do? But this question of why don't we know more is a really important question, particularly in, in the context of the new bill proposed by the Biden administration on infrastructure. There's a section of that bill that talks about federal research, and the first item on the list in that section of the bill is climate research. I have to say I got a little bit emotional when I saw that because climate research in the United States across all of the federal government, and there are 13 agencies involved in some way, is only $2.6 billion. And to put that in context, the recent hurricane in the Gulf, I think that the cost of that was about $80 billion. And the aggregate cost of the fires across the West in 2020 was about $180 billion. So our spending relative to the problem space that we're in, in terms of better information to solve it, is is quite low. And it's been flat in real terms for the past couple of decades. So at least one of the reasons that we can't answer questions about solar climate interventions more readily is that we are a bit behind where we need to be in being able to observe and predict the climate system and understand the atmosphere. And so, all of the questions related to what happens if you put particles in the stratosphere, what does that do to the chemistry of the stratosphere? What happens if you put particles in the cloud layer? And how does cooling work when you do that? These are basic science questions for climate and atmospheric research. And we've just been underinvested in them. And so in Silver Lining, when we go to look at what are the things that we need in the United States and in the world to answer these questions, these are things that we come across that we were surprised that we don't already have or we're surprised at the state of them. So we have some satellite systems that are important for these kinds of questions that are in decline and we haven't funded a replacement yet. We have aircraft that observe the atmosphere in storms that are 30 or 40 years old, that still use teletype type technology to communicate data. So we have a system that's kind of a little bit like our other infrastructure. It's actually older and weaker than we sort of, as Americans are thinking things probably are. So we need to invest in capabilities for climate research to to answer questions like this.
2: So I have a bunch of questions about what practically we would need to do to make uh, solar climate intervention work. Do we have a sense of how much this would cost, uh, just roughly, especially compared to other things that might mitigate the impacts of climate change? And and also, do we know what kind of physical infrastructure, it seems like, planes or weather balloons we might need if, if we actually decided to put particles in, in the atmosphere for this reason?
1: I think we're early days in the technology side of this in terms of the fact that we don't actually have technology for delivering the kinds of aerosols that we would want, the kinds of particles at the scale and optimized size that we might want for these things. So we have some technology development to do. And then in terms of studies to look at what would be the best approach, for example, in the stratosphere, what altitude, where, how often, how much material? Those kinds of questions that would help you determine what kind of delivery system you would want, whether you, whether or not you might even need special kind of aircraft, because it's actually a better approach to do it much higher in the stratosphere than airplanes normally go. So there is work to be done to answer those kinds of questions. To say, you know, what kind of delivery systems would you want, and what aerosols in what uh, regime. In for marine cloud brightening, the idea of brightening clouds over the ocean, you might want systems that can use um, something like machine learning to look at the cloud layers and help guide automated systems to look for, you know, when and where the susceptible clouds are, because that approach would be affected by weather and other things. And so you'd have potentially ships that are... um, targeted to where the clouds are susceptible at any given time. So that's all work that mostly needs still to be done. And at the same time, that's only part of the equation because um, from our perspective, and most of the people that we work with in government, for example, you would also need monitoring systems that are able to measure and detect what you're putting out. And you would want more sophisticated computer models than we have today to help you adjust and simulate and forecast what the effects are of what you're doing and respond to any changes that you're seeing in the earth system. So there's quite a lot to be done in terms of figuring out basically, if you like a climate management system, and you would want a layer of sort of satellites, aerial monitoring, surface monitoring, great computer models to um, simulate and advise as to how the system should work. And so all of that, and then making sure that you've got funding for operational considerations like security and redundancy and good interfaces with policymakers and the public. All of that being said, something like that, even done in a quite sophisticated, robust way, might cost somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of billions of dollars per year. And compared to... Say mitigation strategies to try to reduce greenhouse gases coming from human systems, that's many orders of magnitude lower. And compared to the cost of allowing climate change to continue to damage the system, many orders of magnitude lower. So we have, you know, once you know, a couple of bad fires that cost 180 billion, a storm that costs 80 billion. So, there's a potential for pretty dramatic cost savings if you're able to reduce impacts. And it's substantially less costly than what the industrial transition is to ultimate clean energy in the short term. Over the long haul, the transition to clean energy gives you a permanent fix because you're no longer, you're permanently not emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So this is quite inexpensive in the short term, but it doesn't mean that those greenhouse gas reduction investments aren't ultimately also logical. And you really need to do both.
2: Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's a really important point to emphasize for people that this is, this is in conjunction with reducing climate emissions, re- reducing reliance on fossil fuels rather than an alternative. Is there a way that we can test some of these ideas without doing them at sort of full capacity at a really global scale. Uh, you mentioned we're we're doing some experiments. How can we estimate the effects of this without having truly global effects on, on the whole climate?
1: That's a great question, because I think the experiments that we've done up till now with emissions uh, in the atmosphere have not gone well. So <laughs> experimenting on putting putting things in the atmosphere is is not a great strategy if you can help it. What scientists would like to do in this category is they would like to do very small scale experiments that tell them about how particular, you know, maybe cleaner, more optimized particles behave in a localized way. So at the level of like a smokestack plume you see from a ship or a plume you see from an aircraft and study what that does in interacting with the chemistry of the atmosphere, how it moves dynamically how it affects things locally. You know, maybe up to in the cloud layer, the scale of like one cell on a climate model, sort of, you know, a, a sizable area, but not very big in environmental terms. And in the stratosphere, really just looking at more like aircraft plume type experiments. And then what, they, what the scientists propose to do is take the information from those, what they call process studies, that give them like the fundamental dynamics of how things are working, they can feed that into models and use the models to tell them about what might happen at a bigger scale. And that's what they like to do. And so the recent report that came from the national Academy of sciences that recommended research in this area, they also recommended these small scale process studies and they're a bit controversial. In fact, um, there was one that was just shut down in Europe Uh, in the past couple of days because people are are concerned and maybe not entirely aware of the difference between these very tiny sort of process studies and what you think might be a bigger experiment on the climate system. And a big experiment on the climate system would be quite something to be very concerned about. But these small process studies, most of the ones that scientists want to do are less than the emission from one airplane or one ship. And we really need that info to give us, you know, the ability to project without doing physical experiments at larger scales.
2: So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Kelly's going to talk to us about what an international framework for solar climate interventions might look like.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is
2: So you, you've mentioned that the U.S. National Academy of Sciences uh, thinks we need more research on this. The Royal Society in the United Kingdom does as well. But this is obviously a policy that if it's adopted is going to affect everyone on, on planet Earth. Is there any kind of framework to cooperate between nations and and make sure that that all the countries that would be affected by this have a voice in, in whether or not an intervention like this happens?
1: We, and I think some of the folks that we work with in the research community and in government think about the research piece as a bit distinct from decision-making about using these things. And the international cooperation question is relevant to both of those. So, in areas where the world has been successful in addressing an environmental problem or or a scientifically-based problem, it's often involved good scientific cooperation and research. And one example of that is the Montreal Protocol, where the world came together to address the threat to the ozone layer. And it involved a very robust scientific exchange of information and a very robust international scientific panel that could help support the good, robust analysis and exchange of of scientific research. And so we think this is very important here, too, that it's going to be hard for for anyone to make decisions at the national level, at the community level, or the international level without some information. And so we want the research to provide information for people to make decisions. And we want the research to be accessible to people as quickly as possible in as much of the world as possible. This is a tough problem because climate research involves very large climate models and data sets and capabilities that aren't available to everyone everywhere in the world. And and this was true with the Montreal Protocol too, in the sense that research about what replacement chemicals would be less damaging to the ozone layer that was led by the U.S. and Europe. And in this case, large global climate models, they aren't generated by every country in the world. In fact, the U.S., Europe, and the U.K. are the nations that have large global climate models today. One of the things that we think is great about the recommendation of the National Academy of Sciences for research in the United States is that will help potentially make tools, data, and science available to the rest of the world. The United States is still the largest provider of climate and weather data to the rest of the world. And U.S. science agencies, their climate and weather models are openly available, meaning People from all over the world can download them and use them. Now, that's not as great as it sounds because if you want to do climate simulations on a global climate model, you also need a supercomputer because it's a massive um, workhorse in terms of computing. The crux here is that having a nation like the United States and maybe Europe and maybe China and others start down the path of doing this research, improve our data capture on the Earth system, improve our climate models, develop some tools for looking at how these things might work, and then make them available to the rest of the world in intergovernmental or international structures where scientists are sharing information and it's open. We think that's really important. And so um, we have some proposals both into the government and in the way that Silver Lining works to try to foster international scientific cooperation bodies and to fund researchers in other parts of the world, in particular, the global south. So one of the real tragedies of the climate problem is that the climate problem was almost entirely created by the wealthy countries particularly the U.S. and Europe, and it's most badly affecting the poorer countries in vulnerable parts of the world, in the tropics, in dry, arid parts of the world, and so on, in coastal parts of the world. And so it's really important from our perspective that stakeholders in those countries, their scientific experts, their policymakers, and their people, are able to look at the information as it's being generated to And that we think will help everyone kind of as things move through kind of international decision bodies like in the UN. It's just really important that we have more information and that it's accessible to most people in the world and particularly that it's accessible to the people in the world who have a lot at stake in the next 10, 20 or 30 years because we do not have a plan for them.
2: You you mentioned sort of the injustice of poor countries being among the most affected by climate change. One thing I've I've wondered about as sort of a a question about how we would do solar climate intervention is if it is significantly cheaper, as it seems to be, than conventional ways to reduce emissions, and if it's within the budget capacity of some poor countries, is there a potential that they will engage in it unilaterally as a means of self-preservation does that seem like a, a likely possibility to you? And, and is that sort of in keeping with, with the goals that you have in mind for, for if this policy works? Or uh, are there dangers in, in countries going it alone like that?
1: It, it's helpful to keep in mind, you know, cheaper is relative. So it appears that it would cost in the tens of billions of dollars a year to do this. And it also requires global climate models, supercomputers, and probably satellite and aircraft capabilities. What we learned as we worked in the space over time is that that idea that it's so cheap and easy to do that any billionaire or individual country could do it, that doesn't look to be very true. It looks to be that actually there are only a handful of countries in the world that really have the capabilities that you would need to do it. So that raises a different set of challenges with respect to the international dynamic. But right now today, most countries in the world could not even do a global climate model computer simulation of what would happen if if we did this. In fact, we in Silver Lining, we're funding researchers at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in in the United States and experts from Cornell and Colorado State and University of Washington To try to do that, to try to improve our ability to just simulate what would happen if you do this in some relatively simple scenarios. And it's really hard and it's really expensive and it requires supercomputers. And and remember I mentioned before too that we still don't have the ability to generate the particles at scale either. So it really is is not within the reach of most countries and the people that we talk to in the developing world in, in the global south there are a number of them who are very interested in developed countries doing this work because they can't. So there was a, an advocate from Barbados who, who was saying that in many of these countries, there are people saying, we need more options and we need you in the West to develop them um, because we don't have the capabilities and capacity to do that. This is a lot harder than it's been made out to be. It's It's very challenging scientific and, t- and technical thing to try to do. And the really scientific and technical challenge of it is trying, trying to figure out what the atmosphere and climate system will do. So we understand why people ask the question. And until you know, we started digging into it, we sort of thought the same thing. But the reality is we'll be, in a way, a bit lucky given where we are in both knowledge and technology if there's any country in the world that has the ability to do this. And the most likely are the U.S., China, and Europe.
2: So the last thing I wanted to ask is just for, for a framework for thinking about where where a solar climate intervention fits in. I've sometimes heard it described as, as a band-aid, that we have this urgent problem right now and we need to, to stop the bleeding. But... In the long run, we need to go to the hospital and, and get it looked at, which I guess in this analogy would be transitioning to clean energy and and uh, weaning ourselves off fossil fuels and getting to net zero carbon emissions. Is that the right way to think about it? Or is there sort of a longer term role for this
1: in our, our toolkit as well? I think that's the way we tend to think about it. And we like the medical analogy, m- maybe the Band-Aid one isn't quite reflective enough of the fact that you're doing multiple treatments at once. And so one analogy to think about in the context of COVID is like a ventilator. So you have, you know, you have the need to stabilize the patient and make sure that the patient doesn't cross certain thresholds of breathing or fever while you're working on the underlying condition. And so, if you think about it that way, and you can think of warming in the climate system like a fever in the human body, and if we're running too high a temperature for too long, the system will start to collapse. and so we have to address the fever even if the treatment for what's causing it is different. And so this is quite similar in that you know we think that stabilizing the warming has an array of benefits in you know, saving lives, in saving habitats, in keeping your system from crossing tipping points that are so incredibly valuable to the patient, but they should be done in parallel to addressing the underlying condition. The things that you do to address that, those are the long-term sustainable health treatments. And so they're not separate in time. They're not interchangeable. They're really addressing different parts of the problem at different speeds and in that way it is a bit like the band-aid or the the ventilator i think the most important takeaway for people is you know having a this concept that we're likely to need a portfolio of solutions or portfolio treatments for the patient and we have to take a little bit of a step back and remember that what we're solving for is safe conditions for humans and the stability of our natural systems. And so we need to put together a game plan that ensures that people are kept safe. I think the point that you emphasized before, which is that we have a responsibility to people in vulnerable parts of the world, people who are experiencing climate impacts now, and people who in the best case scenario for emissions reduction, Many of them are predicted to lose their homes, their communities, the habitats they live in. And many of them are projected to die. We need a better plan than that. And I think we have the possibility of a better plan than that.
2: Kelly Wanser is the Executive Director of Silver Lining. Kelly, uh, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Uh, It's been a pleasure and I look forward to the dialogue with your audience.
2: I'm Dylan Matthews, and this is Future Perfect. This episode was produced by Sophie Lalonde. Our editor is Kenny Torella. Special thanks to Taylor Macan and Seagal Samuel. You can find out more at fox.com slash future perfect.